Welcome to Fear of Ideas, your guide to the coming dark ages and the decadence of contemporary thought. I'm Phil Rocco, and with me, as always, from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, it's Gerard Leone. Hello, hello, Philip. How are you? was on the train uh, this morning north from Chicago to Milwaukee, and I finally saw the new and terrifying industrial edifice of Foxconn. Oh, really? Which is just, at this point, these massive... Uh, almost classical gray slabs, um, and it just—if it, you could make something look like a like a prison of the future, this would be it. I'd never actually seen it before, and it's really just a foundation at this point. Yeah, wow, we're we're actually making this. We're, we're making the dystopia right now. One, I I thought it was stopped because like Scott Scotty had left, but I guess they continued with it. Wasn't didn't the legislature wasn't the legislature considering pulling back some of the tax stuff? Oh, they were never considering that. I mean, the governor was cons- the new governor was considering oh. that, but I that's you know, and then there was a whole story about the the CEO. It's now very clear that the CEO of Foxconn was just trying to use that um, that that bid as a, a sort of foray into the presidency, um, uh, running for the president of uh, Taiwan. And then oh. it was he, he later said that like a sea goddess told him um, to run for president. And this is like part of the thing. So I, I really enjoy it. Um, yeah. So this is this is with the, the new Wisconsin Taiwanese Freundschaft um, is is and uh, your is alliance with the sea, which is good. I prefer like sea goddesses over freshwater lake goddesses. But that's just. Yeah, no, I generally I, I go for the, the sea, the saltwater uh, variety. Um, yeah, and then I guess this week, this is, uh, have you followed much of the Iran, uh, the, the now lead up to the war with Iran? I was going to say, um, I, I followed a little bit last Thursday and then luckily slipped into an envelope of, uh, gay debauchery from which I only just removed myself, uh, this morning, which was nice. It was like, so I completely am, uh, oblivious, just sort of, I want to stay in a, a fairly oblivious state with regard to... The various Bolton Pompeo nonsense that will probably uh, lead to invasion. I don't know. Invasion is that war? Is that what's on the table? Yeah, I mean, who really knows at this point? I think it's just what's amusing to me is the question about Iran was not at all if, but when, and uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, well, this is okay. This is happening now, and and here we are, uh, you know, debating the nature of a grainy piece of footage uh like was this in fact the revolutionary guard who was there or are these the um, uh, mines that got stuck to the the oil ships or is that a different thing this is the this is the oil ship yeah oh god so um oh. yeah the 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 good ship um war with iran in my i just started re-watching all of uh the adam like i've just started like going through adam curtis again and I started. I'm hi- started with hypernormalization and working backwards, but in my head, all I can see is just this is a shitty, shitty knockoff version of like the concerted 
interesting effort to basically pull the wool over everyone's eyes for Iraq. Like this is. Yeah, with with Ron Suskin, you know, Ron Suskin's reportage on on Iraq, you know, you got all of these stories about people who, you know, had sort of lived for this and and you know had written, dis, written dissertations on um, you know going to Iraq, and this is like the people who wrote BA theses, <laughs> <laughs> high school term papers. <laughs> they drew they drew colorful things for an art project. Um, it's, it was a creative writing thing. It was um, it was a journaling exercise. It was one of those yeah, was, like was, uh, this is all fundamentally the result of a journaling exercise. The rocks horror, the for horror. jocks, moons for um, goons. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> have, have you watched Chernobyl yet? I have no. I watched every single episode, and I think I've rewatched at least three or four. So one, I enjoyed it thoroughly and completely, largely because I just like seeing um, a functioning socialist state, and I like it being drab. I don't mind when things are drab because I figure that's what equality looks like. It's like some things I just like seeing it. Um, then I've been following just sort of the the thing that's sort of been the the, the irritant in my head, like a little grain of sand, is uh, Masha Gessen immediately responded. It was like these scientists are too heroic. It wouldn't have happened that way. Um, like the the groupthink of the upper Soviet elites was so intense that absolutely no way um, could anything like that have like the show trial at the end in the last episode that couldn't have possibly happened. And I'm like, shut the fuck up, Masha Kitchen. Like, give me give me a little bit of of drama just for my my well, usual no, TV is, pleasure. You know the the aspects of it that I that I liked were the the way in which none of the story of the movie seem to have much to do with Soviet ideology in the end. Mm-hmm. That that in the end, this seemed to be like a story about austerity, economy, and thrift um, <laughs> in designing <laughs> nuclear plants. And uh, that, uh, and then of course, just like, you know, your, your standard story about uh, the administrative state and ideology, uh, which you, is, yeah, not, not so, not so different, but in different, we love, you, and, you and I and, love bureaucrats, and this is the story yeah. of heroic bureaucrats. Um, find me all the boron in the Soviet Union. All right, I got it. All right, let's. I, I'm gonna. I know some people to talk to. Like, yeah, the requests. I think. I think the list of requests. Like, we need all of the boron. We need seven hundred. We need all the boron. We need three slices of lemon, a turtle soup, and. Uh... <laughs> so the, you know, but it's also this movie about. Um, in it, it did it decently well without sort of i think going over i don't really think it went overboard on the heroism of oh no no like i actually think it was there was uh it it was tempered in certain ways there were things the heroic things that they did in some cases were just pointless and it showed them to be pointless Uh, yeah the the everyone knew where the val like essentially the the interests were and at no point was truth going to necessarily overcome um interests or inertia uh and that was that's it's very realistic there's like the there's the super ego sort of injunction like tell the truth no matter what juxtaposed against um juxtaposed everyone just politics everybody knowing where where like the what needs to be said when where the what what are the interests in people saying things are um yeah and what venues you tell which kind of truth in yeah uh, ultimately exactly and and I, I like the so it's sort of I also love body horror. I loved the body horror a lot. 
It was really that, that, it was uh, beyond David Cronenberg level body horror. It was pretty. The, it was like the it was so matter of fact. It was wonderful. It was very uh, good, and I, I'm sure that it's you know when you actually look at Death from Radiation, that this is not even remotely. They didn't even remotely go far enough um, in what it is in fact uh, like. But the it is also sort of a, a movie that that deals or a series that deals with sort of uh, I guess what role experts uh, ought to play in society and sort of what kind of power uh, they should have and there's this sort of if it bleeds into heroism you know at the high, at the high end of the spectrum it's in the voiceover of his uh, the main character's tapes that he records and leaves behind before he hangs himself um, you know and there's that last voiceover at the end where he says something like you know the the uh the facts are always there just wait waiting for you they don't really care about you so it was, it was a very ben shapiro sort of like moment like <laughs> they're waiting for you they don't really care about you um and, they, and they'll in a sense bite you in the ass um and that's sort of the the subject that at least uh one of the two books we dealt with uh, today sort of deals with, which is this story about the the decay of uh, trust in uh, in expertise. So we read two books uh, for today, which I, I can only describe as the equivalent of the intellectual equivalent of torture porn uh, for uh, Gerard myself, which is we we started with uh, William Davies uh, Nervous States, and uh, we concluded with a a truly ghastly. Uh, ghastly contribution by uh, one Mr. David Brooks, um, The Second Mountain. And I, I, in a sense, I want to do both of these books because they're about very different things, but they're both in certain ways about sense and emotion. And if you're familiar with David Brooks at all, you'll recall that he's, he's a writer who traffics mainly in like fear and, and nostalgia for you know a better, a better point in time. And that sort of sort of emotional uh, appeal or that nostalgic appeal is in certain ways symptomatic of what William Davies is talking about when he's talking about the, the sort of decline in tr- trust of uh, sort of stylized social uh, facts and, and rise of emotions as a way of making um, sense of the world. But Davies' book is pretty symptomatic of why liberal academics who use a certain set of methodological toolkits to have difficulty getting a grip on on all of these trends. And so we'll, we'll I guess, talk about why his book is is also um, uh, so frustrating. Um, let's they both don't lack for ambition. Yeah, their tools, their tools fail them uh, completely and utterly. And I don't know that David Brooks's tools fail him in this book. I, I think that they, for what his purpose is, they succeed utterly. This is the kind of book that, no, that, right. that several people who you know are all, let's just say, over the age of sixty, um, have told me that they were really excited about hearing David Brooks on on NPR. Um, I also had the privilege of of watching David Brooks speak recently um, at Where? a com- at a commencement, Ugh. and he more or less gave the uh, you know the the Spark Notes version of this book um, uh, in really? a talk. And uh, it was one of those things that you're nodding along. It's, you know, the, the talk was 
clearly well well written. Um, I'm guessing by his the good parts were by his wife. Um, and then you sort of you're like nodding along and you're like, oh my god, what am I doing? This is terrible. This is the most retrograde uh, piece of rhetoric I've I've listened to in some time. Um, well, it's like the point is with David Brooks, it always kind of it's never on the surface where the retrograde is. Like you can find yourself agreeing with the sentiment on every page. He's and so that, good at sentimentality. That's it's, one it's of, unbelievable. It's his. It's his greatest strength do we want to start with brooks or do we want to start with davies yeah let's actually start with with david brooks we'll, we'll eat our dessert first as it were i was gonna say because like we 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 treated davies more seriously when we were reviewing our notes and then just because um i was saying like the last the last podcast we did was on Montserrat theory but the one before was on two academics sort of struggling and failing with the, the climate crisis the and uh, i described that as like a minor irritation sort of like a just sort of a a drip, drip, drip of water. Your neighbor's dog won't shut up. Um, it, like it's just some irritating. This is. I had uh, my dander was up. I was uh, angry the entire time I read both of these books, but never so much as when I was reading David Brooks's book. <laughs> so many emotions, Philip. Yeah, so well, I mean, it's, it's in, so I've I've read David Brooks's columns um, for years. Listened to him on you know Shields and Brooks for years. Um, I can honestly say I've never picked up like a copy of one of his books like you know bobos in paradise i guess was i had to read that in college sort of popular one in the 1990s um he he had another one i think in the interim um but this is i think his his true sequel his his white album you know um oh yeah no exactly he's been a journeyman uh describer of uh the upper middle classes mores. That's how he made. Sorry, his bones. white guy album. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, no, it's <laughs> the <laughs> nope. Go for it. <laughs> no, I'm, so you know, let's let's actually let, let's talk about the David Brooks, the David Brooks approach, the David Brooks style, because I find David Brooks to be, you know, basically every time I read him, and it, you know, at some point over the last, I would say, four years. It, it got so bad, his columns got so bad that it just became like a self-referential, almost like self-referential joke that, you know, I remember, I've just remembered like numerous times the last few years, just grow, you know, you do the collective groan, you're, people are sending it around, or like you just see it making it around on Twitter, like, can you believe that this was, you know, printed? But um, I, I'm trying, I've been trying to decipher for a while, like what I think makes him so... Like, I get way uh, more incensed by David Brooks' columns than I do, say, like, Brett Stevens. Like, Brett Stevens just seems like a talentless well, it's a, tool. Yeah, it's a hack. It's the subtle, it's the sort of subtlety. Well, like, Brett Stevens, well, like, when uh, when Brooks is phoning it in, they ha- it has the form of essentially, like, I've read some social science recently, and I'm going to connect it to a current event. Um, in usually sort of an irritating, sort of slightly right for, rightward way. Um, and there's a, a set series of themes, um, you know, the, essentially it's all the Robert Putnam, like the, the K of social fabric, um, changes to the family, uh, you know, however, we're going to like filter those through standard rightward themes, uh, and connect it to a current event. Like if you hit those three notes, you've sort of written, uh, uh, David Brooks column, um. I encounter him. I don't read his column. I encounter him far more when he uh, shows up in like my Friday political digest on NPR 
um, as I'm driving home. Uh, and who is he? he's talking with EJD on all the time. And it's just sort of, and it's not uh, particularly obnoxious to anyone um, when he... Yeah, it's like smooth jazz. It's, it's just sort of, <laughs> we can all agree that that the uh, Al Jero, The Al Jero of It offends themes. no one, and in offending no one, it offends everyone. Um, but I think, you know, so the thing about David Brooks that makes him uh, annoying to me is that my, my like I have a little conspiracy theory about him, which I obviously don't believe, but um, his books or columns read to me as if he were sitting w- down with like the general social survey and looking at at just generic sort of attitudes, um, like bisecting the data by age and race and like looking at what are the worries, fears, concerns, dilemmas, foibles, you know, peccadilloes of like white men over the age of say 50 years old. And he just, he <laughs> taps into those themes so well. He has, I can, he has just such a really good instinctual gut sense of what appeals to those people. And so it kind of creates this, I think it kind of creates like a market floor for David Brooks. Like, you know, it's not just his brand that sells his stuff or like makes his stuff, you know, readable or or well-read. And it's not just like the marketing job of his publisher. I think he's genuinely, as a writer, and I don't know if it's just him or his, his editor or some combination thereof, like he actually does tap into this like main vein of American sort of reactionary um, thought, like tepid American reactionary uh, thought. So he really like cashes in on things that I think just are in the in the water uh, of of sort of like American ideology. He knows that they're going to resonate with people. Well, he's very much a white man over 50. It's his... He just has to get in touch with his own concerns. Like, if, like essentially... And recognizes them. Like, this is... The introspection doesn't have to be particularly deep for him to, to channel this particular reader. Um, it's just that, uh, luckily, he's uh, been supremely... He's just supremely sensitive to it. Um, and I think that's, you know, a testament to his education. Um, a testament to um, his particular type of... That, that he's like a... He's just a very like a sympathetic mediocrity. He'll just sort of feel things in the middle in the middle ranges the whole time. Um, nothing. There's nothing extreme. Um, he will tack away from anything that has, uh, yeah, it's, uh, tack away from any extreme at all. Any sort of logical rigor. He's gonna get away from. He's gonna get away from anything that's like too high. Anything that's too low. I think stick to the middle, and you can get a column in the in the times. Yeah, if you think of it, like he he was a uh, he was a big fan of Barack Obama, right? Uh, during Obama's uh, two terms, he you know, routinely praised Obama. Not I want to highlight not for anything that Obama did, uh, or for any kind of policy commitments necessarily that Obama made, but the refrain uh, for why Brooks routinely praised Obama was character. That Obama was somebody who had character, um, and that's pretty 
I think, indicative of how David Brooks writes and thinks about politics through this prism of, I would say, like the conservative side of American sociology uh, through like the prism of like uh, Marty Lipset um, all the way through to um, Robert Putnam um, and, and others, um, you know, Charles Murray is somewhere in between uh, there. Like there's but, Epstein um, on taste. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting because I initially came to reading this book, uh, which is the second mountain, or I think the, the, the subtitle is the quest for a moral life. Um, uh, something I've quested for, uh, I've gone on a vision, spiritual quest for that for some time. Um, and, I, and when I started reading it, I was thinking, okay, this, this is, this is quite deliberately self-help. It's not pretending not to be self-help as you know, there are other writers of this ilk who will write something that is dressed up as like political analysis, but in the end it's self-help. This is quite deliberately self-help. David Brooks is saying, you, you know, fill in audience. I think it's fair to say that the real audience is, you know, men of a certain age. Um, and, you know, you have this problem. Your life sucks. Uh, you don't derive a lot of meaning or joy, perhaps, from the things that you do. It seems like drudgery. Um, you're successful, perhaps. You know, you drive um, a Land Rover. You have some golfing buddies. You, uh, you know, eat at a nice restaurant once or twice a week. But you're not really, you're not really getting the, the juicy moral highs uh, from life. If like and, Cheever wrote for people in the like the same sort of people that Cheever wrote about, or Updike for that reason, it's like where's we're very concerned with these suburbanite white guys. Um, it's just that this is the aughts and teens inflected version of if self help was directed at those characters effectively. Yeah, and I think you know it's it's worth this is a, a fear of ideas theme is like what is self help and where does it come from? Why does it exist? The history of self help, as we think we've said before on this program is, you know, the, the, the history of, of, um, uh, habituating new generations of people to capitulations in the capitalist system that like some kind of, uh, some, uh, morphing goes on in the system. It, it, it disrupts people's lives. It causes people to in, endure or experience unpleasant things. And self-help is the, you know, it is how you um, you fit yourself within the new um, within the new uh, framework, or you know, to uh, to smooth out the sort of rough edges. Um, Liberal that, subject, fix thyself. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, the particular balm that um, uh, that Brooks offers, typically, and and it's no different in this book is sort of nostalgia for a different moment in the history of capitalist societies. One where life was, you know, more carefully managed, uh, where there were traditional authority structures, where there was a stronger sense of culture um, in the sort of conservative sense of that word. And then I would say like hyper-localism, right? Focusing on events 
experiences and relationships that could be reduced to say your block um so it's a very um i don't know it's it, it, not quite grover's corners but you, you know <laughs> certainly levittown wait what happens in grover's corners all i can think about is uh yeah, pe- people are in a graveyard at the end of grover's oh okay corners. That's... i'm just that was it uh, that's in the that's where nathan lane's made up mother character comes from in the birdcage anyway yeah, but i think but i think they're <laughs> referring to that in a camp way where they're like they're all they're all referring to it like oh yeah our town like of course grover's corners um uh but uh so at any rate the problem that that brooks identifies i think and this is also just to get back to this is i think what makes the book insidious is he identifies a problem that is actually a problem um it's 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 hard to quibble with that which is that like i think for a lot of people life doesn't feel especially meaningful it's like existential you know? yeah existential angst is not it's essentially it's not new it's not new you know the midlife crisis is still fucking real you know it's experienced up and down the socioeconomic ladder um it's not just but like the point would be yeah it's like you can there are various ways in which you can derive meaning from your life you could do it through your job you could do it by caring for children and or spouse you could do it through some sort of political philosophical commitment um you could do it by being a member of a small group uh and these are his solutions to essentially this is what he says like that's the there's a bunch of ways yeah, that humans seem to drive you meaning can, you can get married you get married yeah you can um uh have a vocation and what are the other two yeah, so you can he calls intellectual commitments. Now, I don't know many ways that people manage to make intellectual commitments that are satisfying of their lives. Um, I know that, you know, you can be uh, partisanly mean, political and derive meaning from that. Uh, like and that is seems he, like the, speaking of religion, I think. I think he might maybe he's talking about religion. God, I hate him talking about religion. The thing that made me the craziest is essentially the structure of every book or of every chapter in the book is this is just a collation. This is essentially, um, in the oldie days, there used to be things like called commonplace books where people would just sort of assemble quotes of things they liked, and then they'd organize them by subject or topic. Um, and this is a commonplace book. This is like a bunch of things from social science or um, things that he has collected by, from his recent sort of uh, religious turn um, that he's collated and put under the topics of like the broad headings of community, marriage, religion slash intellectual life and or community. Um, and they are kind of joined together under a very sort of cursory skein of his experience, but essentially they're just sort of large collections of quotes. Like, and moreover, nothing like sort of disparate elements all joined under the same rubric when you realize, like, did you just quote social science next to, like, Rabbi Herschel? Did you just, like, do Thomas Merton next to someone talking about, like, relationship therapy? Because... All of a sudden, when you when you break out of the flow, you're like, none of these things really should be next to one another. Yeah, I think that there would be a pretty good, um, there'd be a good journalistic piece to be written from this book, which goes and interviews all of the the living social scientists that he quotes. Like, how do you feel about David Brooks using your work in this particular way? <laughs> um, I, I leave that as a as a piece of journalism for somebody um, to do. But yeah, like nothing, just the final, nothing like, 
highly sp- no uh, there's something to be said for like having a degree like a grain of salt whenever you read like a book of a very spiritual quote unquote spiritual person like some religious leader um some religious thinker you know you know it's like take all but you get the sense that you know david brooks has been reading a lot of niebuhr and a lot of different you know interesting rabbis recently and it all comes out in a soup um but nothing like religious profundity in the hands of like up, you know, a, a New York Times columnist to really kind of make everything look really shoddy and upsetting. <laughs> like, like people who genuinely strove against, like, who literally banged their head up against the religious wall, like, uh, like a Bodhidharma. Like they just sort of, they just kept, you know, uh, they actually were in a genuine fucking struggle with something that was spiritual or existential, and having this uh, uh, portly idiot. Um, that not even like G.K. Chesterton level portly, just sort of mildly, weakly portly guy, just sort of uh, quote them back to you as he talks about his uh, second marriage, uh, makes me want to puke. <laughs> so let's, I mean, but I think the the strong version of the the counter argument or the the problem with this book is, you know, his solution to the sort of dilemmas of of too much individualism and the pursuit of happiness which is a made-up fucking problem well i mean i think it's the way he frames it is i think doesn't really map on to the thing that he begins with which is this problem of of people feeling socially isolated and people not having enough time to uh enjoy um, their lives or, or have meaningful experiences with other people, right? That's that's the bigger um, trend. And if you look at things like the American Time Use Survey, or the amount of time that people spend doing like pleasurable things, self-reported, is is actually pretty minimal. And you know, historically speaking, we take Americans take fewer vacation days than they used to. They don't uh, uh, spend as much time uh, just sort of relieved from from the burdens of work people are doing more work productivity has gone up but the people their ability to enjoy the fruits of that productivity haven't right that to me is like at the at the heart of of this problem brooks's solution and his sort of like description of the problem is like well uh we're we're not making commitments anymore our culture our individualistic culture has just led us to this form of life where we're not making uh, commitments to one another and we're pursuing individual um, happiness but I don't really think that you know it, this is self-help because self-help necessarily has to leave a lot of things constant right and the things that he has to leave constant are like the things that actually led us to start living in this particular way and so it's like okay well now you've led you know been structurally um, uh, pattern to, to, to live this particular way and now it's like it's your problem right you have to somehow lead, lead a moral life right in this, let's, yeah, in this world just to be to be clear that it's like because the point would be like what things does he get backwards like indiv- so according to Brooks like individualism made for you know the economy we live in um, which is uh, probably not true at all you know it's it's some level maybe back in the in the in the sands of time maybe uh puritanical uh thinking and uh predestination had something to do with making uh 
the accumulation of capital, which led to the current situation. Um, or maybe it didn't. But the gist is, at present, uh, every everything about people's lives, from their housing to their work to the way they connect with people via the internet, necessarily isolates them. Um, makes them fearful, makes them sad. And to then say that, really, it's just, it's the people choosing it when it's the only choice there is, is insane. It's like, and then to insist that people have to make a commitment to form a community is crazy because what was, so his solution to individualism is existential commitment. Like, commit yourself to a church, commit yourself to a marriage, commit yourself to a uh, community, a community service, something like that. When that is a, that one, that requires such immense spiritual and moral fortitude to begin with, to begin with. Like that, anyone who does those necessarily has crazy saint-like stores of will. Because when people had existential commitments in the past, it was literally because they were forced to by dint of starvation, terror, and like force. Like, you know, the, the you know, Romans were Romans largely because like they were fucking terrifying barbarians, like on the, on the exterior of the empire. Like it was just sort of, or people were pe like people were you know religious largely because their child just died in childbirth um, or from a disease they didn't understand um, and you know their lives were filled with abject sadness mourning um, and they lived in terror of random events um, and that is why it was a lot easier to believe in an all-powerful God that meted out suffering and uh, forgiveness um, and held you above uh, fire on a, a spindly spider thread like that was easy. Now with so many, like, you're, the fear of death is so remote that really the things that used to compel people to believe in God aren't really there. So, like, it's everything is ass backwards, and his solutions are insane because they're, in fact, so remote from other people. Well, um, I mean, so, but here's the, I want to agree with you and then take it one step further, which is, I think his solutions, his solutions are, are insidious to me because... It's actually conceivable that if somebody were to pick up this book and read it and follow his advice, that they would actually be happier, right? Um, that's not out of the realm of possibility. I think it's entirely plausible that, for example, um, you know, uh, working at a, a needle exchange a couple times a week, if you make a commitment to that and you say, this is a commitment to my community, that you will actually achieve like self-transcendence and you will feel better. Uh, that's, that's entirely plausible. He might not be wrong about that. What he's wrong about is something that he never has the courage in the book to confront, which is that people aren't unhappy because they've not made these choices um, or because they've pursued the first mountain individualistic path. They're unhappy because they had no choice. Um, and this was exactly the set of uh, behaviors that was uh, norm, that was patterned through, um, uh, through the, the economic life they're forced to live to like eke out what it means to like eke out a living. Um, and I think that uh, you'll notice that the things that you can do in Brooks's sort of um, uh, framework to live a more fulfilling life don't really include changing society because that's too too much of a global reach. It's going to make you sad if you try to do that, right? If you try to like act in solidarity with other people. 
makes society and it's actually really interesting because as much as he talks about the need for like making commitments to community and like acting with others for others it's still a book about the individual <laughs> it's so small his ideal communities are families his ideal communities like i didn't realize he has a weird little note I was surprised that I was paying attention because at some point I began to just read topic sentences of paragraphs, but I actually caught, um, he has a little anecdote about how uh, right out of school, he's working for some sort of nonprofit and encounters the Pruitt Igo and the Pruitt Igo, you know, the, the famous sort of public housing project, which I think he encounters it sort of a few years after its creation, um, which is essentially, and the story of the Pruitt Igo is it's, it's like a, one of the biggest modernist public housing projects ever in built St. Louis. in St. Louis. And then subsequently, um, or maybe it wasn't Prudigo, maybe it was someone in Chicago, but the Cabrini, gist is... Cabrini Green? It could. The story of all the public housing projects is the same. They're built in a, in a, uh, a rush of uh, urban renewal, and then within a few years, subsequently defunded so that they become squalid and don't become places that people want to live and don't become sort of the status symbols that they were when they were first built. And subsequently, even though they were subsequently starved of resources made to be blights. Um, the fact of their blightedness is not, is treated as um, an indictment of the project itself and not of the organizations that were supposed to continue the, who didn't realize this was an ongoing project, that it wasn't just housing. It was maintaining housing. It was increasing like the, their viability. Um, and so like he, he, apparently that's one of the turning points for Brooks that like, le like leads him back to the conservative fold um, apparently because he thought he styled himself a leftist apparently in, as an undergrad, which is mind boggling. Um, but before he was literally, um, uh, he was called by, by Buckley as if by God, um, which is astounding. I can't but imagine I realize, what that phone call was like. I can't imagine it all. I'd like, but who are like, and I think he has nice words for Buckley or I don't know. Does he? Does he ladle praise on Buckley or not? I think he... Buckley is such a daddy. He's such a daddy figure. Yeah, I th it's like... When you see... I see I see video now, I can't imagine being impressed by him. But by the same token, I guess to a certain type of person, he was impressive. Yeah, a person who, like, uh, could lean back in a chair at completely 90 degrees and queer, <laughs> like completely plaster drunk and quote Heraclitus or something like yeah. someone who's effectively in a chaise lounge, no matter what chair he's in. Um, oh God. Anyway. So, yeah. I mean, so, but like that, but that's the thing is that like the, the version of society that exists in this book, it's not that different than other self-help books, but it's, it's the version of like society as a bowling league more or less mm -hmm. and it's it, it was telling actually in this particular speech um he quoted uh dorothy day he loves but, dorothy day right yeah he loves the whitewashed version of dorothy day where she wasn't uh, uh publishing the catholic worker and being a socialist like that's <laughs> he and, and like the thing is a lot of a lot of catholics do a lot of Catholics like the idea of like, oh, Dorothy Day, like she worked with poor people and stuff. Um, but they, you know, categorically reject and whitewash the version of her that was invested in a more transformative um, uh, approach to society, which was actually where meaning derived from. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a higher bar. 
Um, but yeah, so this is, you know, I got exactly what I expected. I got exactly my money's worth for this book. I was so delighted. Um, the the second the second mountain was uh, was worth climbing. I I went to the top of the mountain and I saw <laughs> and I saw I don't know like suburban Delaware. I you know. Like, yeah, what's from the top of you just yeah you saw the the ticky tack houses you saw like uh, yeah you just see all the little boxes. I, the I little saw boxes all of the all the of the first wives. Uh, <laughs> the first wives were down below. They were actually on the they were the, on the first mountain. They were on the first um, mountain. That was Diane Keaton, Bette Midler, and uh, who's the third oh, first, first wives, wives club? That's a great movie. I love that movie. Who's it? Goldie Hawn. They're all on yeah. the other mountain waving at David Brooks. They're all wearing... And you want to stay on the first mountain with Bette Midler, ideally. Yeah, quite. Uh, we're drinking <laughs> champ- champagne. Drinking champagne, singing tunes. What a what a debauched life when you could be uh, engaging in uh, normal commitment. Uh, yeah, that's, oh that's exactly right. Um, so at any uh. rate... Uh, but the reason I think that this book pairs well with the other book that we read is, you know, as you'll notice from our conversation, this David Brooks' book is really a book about um, uh, the feelings, the sense of the past, to use the phrase of Henry James. Um, and, uh, and, and that's really what he, what he traffics and he, in. But he's never so tasteless as to actually say back in the day. Um, but in it's always day. there. That's correct. It's, uh, it's always sort of haunting the page. Um, and, uh, the, quite the reverse, uh, is the case with our, um, second, uh, author, uh, who's very interested in the idea of nostalgia and emotions and feelings, but he's interested in them, um, sort of in their own right as a, uh, a sort of problem, uh, to be solved as a, uh, something that constitutes the current sort of, you know, legitimacy crisis and this is a very classic I, I one reason i wanted to to read this book is this is a very classic fear of ideas book this is exactly the kind of book that um our podcast was designed to review and then subsequently pick at and or demolish um and i was hopeful that it would sort of clear a certain kind of bar that i think we've set uh which very few books have um but which is clearable uh, but it did not. <laughs> so William Davies, I, I got uh, cued into his work. Um, he's a British uh, sociologist. Um, and several years ago, he wrote a book called The Happiness Industry, which is a book about how sort of like government and big business sort of created this thing called well-being, which you could then measure and index and uh, uh, just became this way in which we sort of evaluated um, uh, public policies and did like cost-benefit analysis with like quality of life uh, and all of these sorts of things. And it was just a really good, it was very, um, it was like a book that was like made for me. I'm sort of obsessed with this stuff. Um, and it was a really good book about how this, this sort of production of knowledge is, can be sort of abased and the way that sort of measurement corrupts. Um, and I, I like that. Um, this book is a really weird I, it felt almost like a commonplace book as well it's funny that you use that term um, but it sort of begins like a lot of books that have been published in like the last three years 
to sort of, um, you know, insert Brexit, Trump, uh, you know, right wing, right wing populism. Isn't it weird? People uh, don't believe anything that experts say anymore. Uh, we can't, uh, you know, some uh, event will happen. Um, some sort of untoward surprising event, like a shooting will happen. And then uh, there will be conspiracy theories and people don't actually, some uh, questionable number of people don't actually believe um, that the event happened in the way that the official uh, account of things uh, went. Or think of Trump saying that, you know, um, however many thousand people like didn't die um, in Puerto Rico as a result of Hurricane Maria, something along those lines. Um, and so, you know, his sort of question is sort of like, why, why is this, right? Why is the public's trust of in relation to sort of social facts produced by officials, experts, official statistics, um, been weakened over the years? And, and why are people sort of more sensitive to feelings of risk and danger that supplant those uh, way of making sense of the world? Um, and so that's, that's where he sort of starts. And I think that there's, we don't have to quibble with that premise. That's something that's interesting, something maybe worth exploring. Um, but there's a lot of problems with the way that he does it. Or the way he doesn't do anything at all. Yeah, I think you hated this book more than I did. I think I did. Well, the, the point, so... I didn't realize, so as I was, I'm talking it out now, because the whole point is it is a commonplace book. It's essentially a collection of, it's the collection of the usual themes over the past three years. It's, science doesn't have the ability to compel acceptance. People are making decisions apparently on the basis of emotion, and that's a terrible thing to do. Um, we have no way of measuring anything. Um, there's all well, this we terrifying... Do, nobody believes it. Yeah, there's a terrifying thing. Like, the body is terrifying. Like, look at all the stuff that's... Ha like, every... Every few weeks, we get to learn about, like, a bacteria that's resistant to, you know, antibiotics and so on and so forth. Like, there's so many different sources of terror and confusion. The thing to do, then, in the presence of these themes, is to, I, to frame the problem. If, in fact, these are bad things, the result of a bad process or bad sort of ongoing sort of chain of events, do we want to arrest it? Do we want to stop it? In which case, like, that's a you can have a conservative response to that. That is an acceptable response to say, uh, you know, the body, like, we're doing all this crazy shit with genetics. Um, look at all the things it has wrought. Or the internet continues to wreak havoc on the reasoning in the public sphere. Um, what should we do? Like, bite the fucking bullet and say what should be done if, in fact, this is a problem. Like... Do you want censorship? Do you want to control the public space to promote deliberation? Like, if so, say so. Yeah, you have to like, confront those things. You have to confront those things. That is not, that is never done. It drives, so that's the main thing. That is why I was so upset. Was I'm like, you have assembled a series of themes, and then you have done an academic sort of, you put academic English on it, because for each of these, he has like a, history of ideas progenitor of the problem like statistics started being collected during the time of the absolute state and he introduces us to some uh, 18th century people who did a good job inventing statistics but who cares like, <laughs> like like if the happiness index is a problem what should we do like that's the that's the whole point would be you framed it 
reply. Like, either say no, stand with Thor's history, say no, or skew us in a different direction. Well, so let's let's actually unpack the argument a little bit. So, um, and I, I agree with you. I think the, so one, I'll just, I'll, I want to confess, I'll confess something up front, which is that I have a lot of sympathy for, um, I think, what he's trying to do here, because there is a lot of thing. There are a lot of things here worth sort of exploring and trying to explain. Um, it's hard to, it's it's hard. You want to draw everything in. I think there's this pressure now in the, um, especially in this sort of zone of public intellectualism he's working in, to not miss anything. And I think this this all, the reason I think the book is a mess is that he's trying to just capture every little event and, and like take stock of a lot of different things that are going on and it just ends up being a mess because you can't really do that you really have to focus um and i i sense that there's a little bit of pressure to be more capacious and then it just makes the, the argument messier um but um i think that the set of tools that he's working with is maybe not the right ones uh for this story so he he employs this uh set of tools from like the history of ideas um, to tell the story and really at the, at the center of his story is okay like why don't pe- why are people so uh, reliant on uh, emotions feelings etc right now why is trust and the credibility of sort of official stylized social facts um, uh, at its at its nadir um, he kind of says that there's you have to think about there, there are two different um, intellectual lineages that produce those kinds of information. There is, on the one hand, I would say like the, the protagon- protagonists of the book, like the heroes of the book, are like the Enlightenment people. And like the Enlightenment idea of what knowledge, knowledge is for is like the Royal Society. We're going to create this knowledge. It's going to be public. It's going to be reproducible. Um, we're going to be able to test these things over and over again. And it's going to be for the, per- you know, there's a vague... Um, public good component to it Um, and so like you know like bureaus of of national statistics um, kind of have this this logic like imprinted on them Um, and the the antagonists of the book are a kind of motley crew of everybody from French revolutionaries to Hayek to cold warriors, to um, uh, Silicon Valley people, um, and the the antagonist is is, is just kind of uh, it, it's it's a bit more amorphous. But I think the idea here is that that's not the only reason that people engage in large scale projects of knowledge production. That um, there's an alternative view that you accumulate knowledge in order to win. Um, and destroy your uh, opponents, right? In war, you don't want knowledge for the purpose of like educating the whole public. You want knowledge about your enemy so that you can eliminate them. Um, and the, you know, in, for Hayek, you know, there's a great distrust in individual reason. Um, and the only way that knowledge can really be aggregated for Hayek is like through the market um, mechanism. Um, and that's really sort of why this there's an emphasis on like private knowledge and the pri- the sort of why antagonists are antagonists here 
is that the private knowledge that people are interested in creating is about uh, the public's emotions and feelings. They want to like create indices and registers of those things because in war or in market context, knowing how people feel uh, or uh, emote is the way that you dominate them. Um, if you're a state and you want to control your population and mobilize them for war, it doesn't really matter that they know that the economy is doing well. It matters that they feel patriotic. Um, so you've blown my mind slightly. Is this from more from the happiness index? Is this a theme? No, from this is this is what well? I've drawn out of his. This is really kind of drawn out of his book. Um, he doesn't really because do you did a lot more drawing than I did. I had a tendency to. So as you can see, I treated more the chapters more individually. Um, you subsequently found a theme which I think is interesting, albeit. It, it doesn't the come simple out. Opposition. It doesn't really come out. I'm, I'm trying to be generous to the book. You're being very generous. And you've subsequently found a theme, which is sort of a public spirited cast of information production versus a um, more strategic, um, more individually useful um, body of knowledge. Um, because it happens in a few different ways. He described his like opposition to Teal is because Teal's idea of the market isn't really a monopoly free market, it isn't a competitive market. It's a market that ruthlessly uses like a very small amount of information um, at its very precise time for domination. Um, yeah, I mean, the problem for me is like, number one, just like from a historical standpoint, it's like this is a rise and fall argument. Like there was like the rise of the Enlightenment and then maybe even just like a second rise of like the dark Enlightenment, um, the anti-Enlightenment. And then... Um, what you have to do here, though, to accept that, that that's really what's generating it, that it's like this war between alternative streams of ideas that are sort of battling it out and, and ultimately the, the antagonists sort of win. And, and now we're, you know, have a lot of private knowledge that's trying to control our emotions, which I don't really discount. I mean, there, there's something there. But a lot of the, the things that he claims are the properties of the antagonists are also there on the Enlightenment people. Yeah. Right. If like if you read Foucault or take Foucault seriously at all. The projects of enlightenment, the sort of enlightenment state formation, are at least as concerned with the public's feelings as they were with producing like stable understandings of the world that everybody could agree the with. The point of Foucault was that enlightenment science, the project of the enlightenment was dominance of one's own population for the production of goods and soldiers and the dominance of one's colonies. It's essentially like... <laughs> the Enlightenment project, sort of the ideal of like a public spirit Enlightenment, was largely just because the knowers and the producers of knowledge all belonged to the same sort of um, rarefied elite that were so privileged that they couldn't possibly know they were hurting people or doing or di it didn't occur to them how what they were doing was repugnant um, to. <laughs> and so, like the. You know, why did knowledge seem public-spirited? Like, why were there a bunch of bureaucrats engaged in uh, public-spirited activities? Um, because they weren't... Uh, because they thought they could speak for everyone, um, largely because they papered over the differences and costs um, very significantly, and uh, largely because they didn't notice them. Um, because the costs were borne by the subaltern, by minorities, by women, by <laughs> everyone else. Right. And I mean, you know, there are other <coughs> things. They're just, like, pieces of the historical record that I think are you know like like missing or, or just like you know we think about enlightenment who who are like the the governing people who are like most inspired or so-called so most inspired by the enlightenment it's like you know the you know people who drafted the constitution 
Um, and, and if you look at like the way that they saw knowledge working was also purely instrumental and, um, you know, toward, towards the end of like winning political uh, battles. So like the first veto that's ever issued by George Washington is a veto about the apportionment formula um, for members of Congress, right? And there's, there's like two different methods. There's like Hamilton's method and Jefferson's method. And lo and behold, like Jefferson's formula happens to uh, give Virginia like another member of Congress. Um, like this is not this this sort of idea of like enlightenment knowledge production is this you know thing for the public interest is a little it's a little hard to stomach, and also like G- GDP that's a wartime that's a wartime production. Uh, it's it's forced onto countries through the Marshall Plan. It's it's really it's I just don't buy this like distinction. But the other thing I think is like weird is okay like. There's so many things that you could really dive into here um, and try to get get under the hood of, but he doesn't, like anti-vaxxers. Like, you could just do one whole chapter on vaccines and like, here's, 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 here's the place that really would seem to matter and, uh, you know, uh, where, you could, where you could dig in. Um, uh, th- you know, the idea that uh, people don't trust the medical science on uh, vaccines they don't get their kids vaccinated her immunity goes down um and I'm like why is this is it the loss of trust in the medical profession well maybe not i mean doctors still retain like a really high level of trust in the aggregate so maybe like what's what's going on i don't know there's a lot of lay knowledge out there like mommy blogs um <laughs> you know there's um other legitimacy crises um that are going on low levels of trust in government but there's also other kinds of things that are weird you know like um, uh, we now have a way of circulating myths that is profit generating. That's probably a part of it. It has nothing to do with ideas. It has everything to do with the structure that circulates certain ideas. To say nothing of just sort of the simple story of interests on the side of knowledge production, the royal like it's easy when you say like the, the royal society is a bunch of disinterested rich people sort of like um, playing around with. Uh, crystals dead frogs and vacuums like and that's that's cool um but the point would be is like science is gigantic um in order to and sort of the story about hobbes and the royal society is fun um but like the leviathan and knowledge production is really important and to actually um and to an extent our government is somewhat agnot like not agnostic on all knowledge production because it produces plenty and um privileges plenty but there are certain places where it decides to be um you know, above the, like, supposedly above the fray. Um, and it leads to, and those places are uh, significant sort of sources of content or contest. Uh, you know, climate change being the chief one is like the, one of the chief ones is like, well, why does a certain segment of the population, um, this weird sort of rump bunch of Republicans insist that it's not real. Um, and that has a lot to do with emotions and it's also buttressed by, um, um, a concerted body of deniers um, because like the actual interests of a bunch of a con- like of a, a significant portion of the economy are arrayed against the political consequences of believing that information um, and that has to be reckoned like the whole point is knowledge production isn't just because there's truth doesn't mean it's automatically acceded to um, I don't know. doing here with the, this particular case is we're just this is all speculative we're, we're no more armchairy than than anybody else 
you know, or less, oh, you know, or less. But I think the um, if you're gonna if you're gonna start with the problem of uh, the circulation of you know ethno nationalist myths related to a you know a violent unknown event, uh, and then you're gonna go all the way back to the Enlightenment and like draw that history, you had better have some really solid mechanisms of like reproduction. I mean, like, unless, except if you want to like treat the issue at a very sort of like high level of abstraction, which is fine. And you want to talk about how people have thought about society. That's also fine, but don't, there's a little bit of like a, uh, a sort of moving the football uh, in this, in this book that is, seems, um, unfair. And it's also just like not very helpful. Um, although, you know, I don't know that people, people draw back on the enlightenment for all kinds of things. I was recently reading that Alex Chilton, uh, a big star when he was writing one of the, one of those songs in the late seventies, he was listening to a lot of Handel and like one in like Daisy Glaze, like there's a huge section of Daisy Glaze that's like concerto grosso number seven or something like that. So, you know, uh, people pull on the enlightenment for all kinds of things. Oh um, my God. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Did anyone do anything with the, the arrival of the queen of Sheba? Oh, probably not, but oh, that'd like, be good. That'd be hot. That's like, that's T-Rex. And you know, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, oh, it's, you know, it's, this is, this is, this is a huge, pro- like the fact that he didn't get anywhere close to nailing this is like a huge problem. Um, he, he had a pretty like, good why did it leave? Like, how did it leave the editors? Like, there's certain editors bay. I don't know what exactly where you find this, but the, like, where was it supposed to go? Because there's, you know, I think the thing is there's nothing that's in this book that's particularly wrong. It's just that, it's just that it's just that, you know, each of the individual chapters on its own is like, okay, now we know about Hayek, right? And we learn a little bit about the Mont Pelerin Society, right? You learn a little bit. I mean, like, he's really culling from, you know, greatest hits of like STS. Like you read, you get a little bit of Phil Morawski and like, um, you know, cybernetics and the Cold War, and you get a little bit of uh, the sort of history of statistics and, and all of these things. And then you get, you know, present day stories about Facebook and and other sorts of things and, and trolls. But, um, but like the whole thing doesn't cohere. And in the end, you can always tell that it doesn't cohere because in the end there's always this attempt to do some kind of chapter that's like and what do we do now which no one wants to write but the editor makes you write and and then he it just completely falls apart it makes no sense that's the part of the book where I, I really gave up i was like what exactly do you do here and he has no idea because there's no putting toothpaste back in the t- you you can't have had this argument and then you know try to put intellectual toothpaste back in the tube, so... Well, it's like, well, what exactly were you illustrating by putting all these skeins together? The point would be, 
are you just putting like things next to like things, or are you in fact doing it for a purpose? And there is no purpose because there is no sense of what it would be that you are trying to analyze or accomplish. It is simply like a academic sort of trope or way of generating verbiage that has nothing to do except to put a number of words on a page. Um, Brooks, at least, you can see is satisfying his own weird emotional strangeness um, by getting to talk about his, his new marriage. Um, but <laughs> Davies is not fulfilling. He's not advancing a thought, and he's not advancing... He, does, he doesn't make... It's not even emotion. That's the thing is it doesn't even... It's just this low-level dread, and it doesn't even make you feel anything. Like not not that that's like a reason to like or not like a book so much as it would lend a coherence to it if like a crank on the subway it sort of had you could see the emotional arc but instead it's just it's it's a it's a vision board it's a pinterest board it's a it's a commonplace book well right but i think you know i'm not defending him on this but i you know it's the title Nervous States is actually seems to characterize nothing so much as the state in which he wrote this book. <laughs> Around the time when he started... So this is the second... This is actually the second edition of the book. Really? What the first, fuck? Yeah, the first edition came out, mm, I think, maybe six months before this one. And then he, he revised it a little bit. Um, I actually have not read that version, um, the initial one, which came out in the U.K., um, how feeling took over the world. Yes, how feeling took over the world was the initial subtitle of this, and now the subtitle is not that; it's something else. Um, Democracy. The, so, whereas feeling, where like you could, that's not a bad. Essentially, that makes it sort of enlightenment argument sort of bent more clear, which would be feelings bad, reason good. Um, how do we re-enthrone? the goddess philosophia in like the democracy but this is just the decline of reason so we don't even know what's good hey, or is bad that goddess, is that good goddess a freshwater goddess or saltwater oh it's one? definitely definitely a i have a good question i'm just thinking of the durer print of um of some sort of uh thin thin hipped white woman in a throne surrounded by various like analogs for the sciences um it's an sts conference who did Faust love? Who was Faust Spain babe? The Maid Marguerite. The Maid Marguerite. Not even the not even the love of the Maid Marguerite or uh The Flesh Pots of Walpurgis Night. Night. Yeah. Um could could bring Faust to ask the moment of fulfillment to linger. <laughs> um <laughs> So, I need to finish episode notes so that we can quote to that, so I can provide people. That's a deep, deep, deep cut that should perhaps There would be, be a book, American Prometheus, there would be a book to read. Um, I'll do it. This is, the, this is the sort of larger problem, which is that there's a lot of demand, there's a lot of pent-up demand for um, some smart person that has deeply thought about such things in the past to write something that will help other people understand things in the present. Well, I'm here to tell you, just because they have that set of tools doesn't mean that that's the right set of tools for the task. Not every um, intellectual tradition is really very good at, uh, at doing the work that, that it takes to, to sort of make sense of, uh, make sense of the present. And in fact, you just sort of lose more than you, uh, more than you gain. And I don't know. I, I'm I'm hopeful that like this is a 
a first draft and that people will sort of see like, oh, okay, actually maybe we need to abandon certain kinds of uh, intellectual traditions that, that in, the, in the past have been brought to bear but maybe didn't bear much fruit. So that was one of the things I was thinking about was one of the ways to re... So Davies's approach is to sort of like, um, aside from just sort of assembling a bunch of very similar contemporary things, is ultra introduce the like the, the 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 lens of history. Let's show you some of these characters who are grappling with similar themes just in the 18th century, for instance, um, and that points to a different genre subgenre of the academic book, which is. Um, Whereas, like, a lot a lot of books are structured along the lines of, like, this was history before, then there was a rupture, this is history now. One of the academic genres is to say, is, like, people um, think there's been a rupture. In fact, this is a continuum. It's never really changed. It's the same sort of theme. I would have preferred he talk about that. Like, that's one of the ways you could do this was people think there's been a rupture um, in expertise. In fact, expertise has been contested from the beginning. Um, in fact, you know, and that's what, but essentially, like, well, this is the way it was handled. Because now what we see with, like, the problem of, like, for instance, the problems with, like, the, the media platforms and um, the, fake, the fake problem of fake news. Like, people thought fake news was a problem, and lo, there's been a lot of political um, flack placed on the major um, social media companies. And, uh, you know, the only way to handle... Um, fake news is to put a bunch of editorial eyeballs on things. And so, like, that is one of the things people are considering as a policy solution. And it's not a new solution. It's simply put gatekeepers in place. And that's been sort of the way... But they haven't been admitting to this. It's like, people don't know how many fucking censors Facebook employs to make sure there's no child porn. But you need a bunch of eyeballs on everything that's posted in order to make sure there's no child porn. It's just that straightforward. Because the computer... Like... Computers are good, but they're not that good. Moreover, humans are, I, I, I don't know, I'm tempted to say, at some point the AI will be good enough to tell whether or not it's child porn. Maybe, maybe not. But the point would be is like, that's been Facebook's only or Google's only real solution has been, well, we've been trying to automate it. And that hasn't solved it at all, at least not at the current stage of development. And the, the gist is like, the only interesting problem that's going to develop is just sort of how people either get around or manipulate the algorithms and that's a problem of design and like the only person who's ever sort of i think uh, grappled with the problem of the design inherent in those that can't be solved with humans is like jaron lanyard has been the people who's been worrying who's been worrying about coding and how its structure affects our social structures um and we haven't done anything by jaron lanyard but the point would be is like one way to organize this in a better way would be, all right, let's let's in fact look to history to prove a continuum and to show how it's been dealt with politically in the past. Um, because the probably the tools of the past are the things that get applied to it now. Um, this is like, what is it? As Holmes said, you know, the common law operates by analogy. So it's like, we didn't deal, we used to deal with the problems of like how you what is the legality of drilling for oil? You deal with the dr legalities for drilling for oil by taking the body of law from the um, law of drilling for water. Like, that's the same sort of shit that's going to happen. No one's coming up with drastically new political solutions. You just keep using the stuff from the past. So, like, that's one way of handling this would be consider what tools you, there are from your ancient historical toolbox. Uh, I don't yeah, know. that's right. But also think about the, I mean, work on... This situation, I mean, you're not going to create 
it's really, really hard to find a covering argument that is going to explain in a sort of it, – it, the book ends up having this like one weird trick quality to it, which is like I'm if, – if we proceed into the next five years and, and people just stop doing that, I'll be very satisfied. But it's just as a result, you don't end up – there's so many things like, okay, well, you, if you have a problem with that particular way that expertise is abused, you literally you, – is entirely possible to restructure the law that insulates that kind of knowledge from abuse, right? Or that incorporates mechanisms to build public trust. It's, people know how to do this. Um, but the overarching sort of argument going back into sort of the enlightenment, I'm like, I'm just not sure how much help William Petty reading his writings is going to get you here because mostly it's about why france sucks i mean you read anything written for the british crown there are like four chapters of 10 that are like and here's another set of reasons why france is not very good um and that their navy is very weak um so that's most of burke and that's like uh david brooks's favorite yeah and so we bring it all around right david brooks will now be writing a report on why the Iranian uh, Navy is actually not very <laughs> hip, not cool, or good no. to me. Um, all right, so, well, here we are. Here we have it. We've returned. Another episode come and gone onward across the upward. sands of time. Upward to the firmament. <laughs> Sick of Terra Strap. <laughs>